Well, if you have a seat and open your Bibles to Matthew 24, first order of business, wanted to wish happy anniversary to Mark and Tiffany, 12 years, uh, so a good job and well done, and 12 more times two would be awesome. Secondly, happy 4th, well, 5th of July, uh, you thought the shock and awe was last night, but it's today, and uh, I'm going to explain to you how it actually was back in AD 70. If you... Um, had her bulletin in there's a note sheet and you're going to need it. Uh, I don't know if you're going to try to keep up. I'm going to give you a lot of information today. And uh, if you want to uh, read the notes that basically I'm reading off of, that will be online uh, if you go on the website because there's a lot. So um, it's going to maybe feel again like history lesson part two, but it's incredibly important for us. So we're going to start in uh, Matthew 24. I'm going to read from verse 15 to 31, and then we're going to break it down uh, for you. So here we go. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 says this, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field, not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, for such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise, perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Whenever, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken and then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. This is God's Word. And let me pray so I don't screw it up. Father God, thank You for Your Word. It is mysterious, and yet You teach us by Your Spirit. I pray You will move me out of the way and do that today. Instruct us. Increase and build our faith through what has happened in the past. Convict those of us who need conviction. Comfort those who need comfort. And let us all be led to the cross where we find great hope and joy knowing that all the work has been done. We pray for Jesus' quick return. In His name we pray. Amen. So, in this uh, final of five concentrated teaching times uh, for Jesus, there are five sections of this in the book of Matthew. You know when the section ends, because it will say, and when He finished these sayings, or saying these things, you'll see that at the end of Matthew 25. So we have Jesus here going on a very lengthy teaching kind of moment, if you will, with His disciples on the top of Uh, the Mount of Olives, and he is uh, giving through this sermon or this teaching, this lecture, this discourse, uh, predictions about the end of the world. And it began, or he began teaching in response to the disciples' question. He was walking out of the temple. They were like, look at all the buildings. And he's like, don't you know that all this stuff is coming down? And they're like, what? They're really shocked by that, disturbed by that. And so they asked him in the very beginning of chapter 24, verse 3, tell us when will these things be? Particularly when the temple's coming down that you're talking about. And they asked him, what will be the sign of your coming and the closing of the age? So I said last week, Jesus is addressing two questions. One is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? of which he spends the first half of Matthew 24 on, where we're still at. And the other question is, when is the end of the age? 
Specifically, when is Jesus returning? When is it all over? Okay? We're dealing with the first question last week and this week. And his response and his explanation to their first question, again, is details about the impending doom of the destruction of the temple before his eventual return. And Jesus warns more than once, and I'll talk a lot about it next week, this generation, he's speaking to uh, the generation of Jews and Gentiles that are alive at the time that he is speaking and can hear him. And a generation is understood to be approximately 35 to 40 years of time. So Jesus uh, died and rose again around 33, 34, and these events are happening at AD 70. You can do the math, even if you're not that good of it, you know that that's generally a generation of time. Now, it has been um, nearly 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words, and there are a number of Bible-believing Christians who I would consider brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe some of you here, because everyone comes to the table with some end times understanding based off of perhaps how you were raised, based off of weird movies with Nicolas Cage that you watched, based off of what you've heard, whatever. Okay, So you all come to the table, and there's a large group uh, of Christians that believe uh, that most of the predictions that Jesus is talking about are still yet to be fulfilled. That after 2,000 years, they have not come to pass, or at least most of them have not, and they're yet to be fulfilled. That's caused many to question whether Jesus is actually a prophet because he didn't get it right. Deuteronomy 13 tells us that when a prophet stands up and says things are going to come to pass and they don't come to pass, they are what is called a false prophet. So in order for Jesus to be a true prophet, what he says has to come to pass at some point. And I would argue that if what Jesus taught is going to be relevant especially to the generation that he's speaking to, then everything, at least most of what he talks about, has to take place before that generation passes, which will be around 70 AD. And that's why last week I I dove pretty deeply into uh, what I believe was a predictive description of the events surrounding this Roman-Jewish war, which you may have never heard about until last week, that happened between AD 66 and 70 in Jerusalem. Now, if we're honest, and we'll just be honest, pretend we're not sinful and honest for a second, I know that um, many of you would think, okay, reading this text would be important uh, considering it's written by a Jew, it's written to Jews, because Matthew's Jewish, he wrote it particularly to Jews, to basically defend and portray Jesus as the Messiah, as the King that you have rejected. And it was written probably 10 to 15 years before the events took place. So as a Jew reading it in AD 55, AD 60, you would go, man, I can see how this would be meaningful to them. That Matthew would be like, look, this day is coming. For us... 2,000-ish years removed from when Jesus... You're like, what the snarf does this have to do with me? How can I ever learn anything from this? And what that has led many to do is read Matthew 24 and just kind of go, that's weird, and move on. And not spend any time digging into it. And so, we don't do that. I don't do that. What I want to do is dig into it, and here's my hopes as we do this. Because you might think, why are you spending so much time in history? Um... God has given us this, and He's said through the words of Paul that everything written down was written down for our growth, to build our faith, including this. Now, my hope is this, that through our time, you will gain several things. One is a greater just understanding of Jesus' words. Just clarity on on what He's actually saying. Uh, Because much of what he's saying is is apocalyptic. It's figurative. And if you take it literally, it gets weird. Um, Secondly, is I want you, by the time we're done, is to have gained a greater confidence in the authority of God's Word. 
Because sometimes you read this stuff and go, that's why people don't believe in Christianity, because it's weird and freaky, right? It isn't. It's rooted in history. Like, God didn't just write something like, let me give you some fluffy stuff that sounds magical like unicorns, and you just kind of believe it. This is rooted in history, and so as we leave here, I want you to have confidence in God's Word. And then lastly, I want you to have a greater perspective about how the world's going to end. About His second coming. And a lot of that will be over the next few weeks. Today we're still going to spend some time in history. So, as you backtrack a little bit, uh, we have here in Matthew 24, um, again, a conversation that began when Jesus was talking about the buildings of the temple, and He said, there's not going to be a stone left upon one another. It's all going to be thrown down. And in the first half of 24, He basically said, here's a bunch of signs. And He started listing out all these different signs that would characterize the time period building up to when things would come down. And we looked at all those of the persecutions and the martyrdoms and the false prophets and the false Christ and all these things. Now, as you start in 15, Jesus is basically identifying the the final sign. Like the last big thing that you're going to see that you will know the end is coming. Because you remember in chapter uh, 24, verse 14, He said, then's the end's going to come. So we're talking about the end of the temple. So here's the final sign before the end, and He says this, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, run. Right? That's what He's like, get out of town. When you see what was spoken in Daniel, and He says this little parenthetical, let the reader understand. Now, the reader, at least Matthew's intended reader, are Jews. And Jews would know exactly what Matthew was talking about. If this was Luke, then Luke would have went, let me explain it differently. And he does, actually, in his Gospel. We'll see that. Matthew's like, you know what I'm talking about, guys. Right? That's pretty much what he says. Because they're Jews. They have a Jewish understanding of Daniel. I don't know how many Jews are here. I'm one, but I don't know if you are, so I'm going to give you a little bit of Daniel of what he's talking about. If you're not familiar with the book of Daniel, it is a book in the Old Testament. Uh, He was a prophet, and he did write when they were in captivity under Babylon. And the term abomination is used outside of Daniel many times in the Old Testament. And the term abomination describes uh, something that is lawless, or, or characteristic of false worship. It is oftentimes something that is uh, an object or an action of disgust because and disgust to God because it takes away from His true worship. So God will say, this is an abomination, and this is an abomination, and this is an abomination. Well, Daniel speaks about the abomination of desolation, or literally, the abomination that brings desolation. And it's in Daniel chapter 9. As I said, Daniel is, is a book where uh, this young man receives multiple visions and they're all about uh, the future, some for Babylon, some for other nations that will come in, in the future uh, at that time. And he writes a lot about end times. And one of his prophecies in Daniel 9 is about this thing called the 70 weeks. And the 70 weeks, uh, God speaking through Daniel is 70 kind of periods of time until the world's going to end. And there are Bible scholars and professors and pastors and books written about these 70 weeks, dividing the weeks, when do the weeks start, and I won't go into all of that because that will take way much too much time. But what he does talk about is that he warns about an abomination of desolation, which during this time is going to bring uh, destruction to the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary. Now, this is several hundred years before Christ. Okay? And it was fulfilled also before Christ. Okay? In 168 BC, what happened in fulfilling this prophecy that Daniel had said earlier? A Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He entered Jerusalem, slaughtered 40,000 Jews, and plundered the temple. He 
sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple, the altar of burnt offering. He sprinkled broth from the unclean flesh all over the holy grounds as an act of deliberate defilement. And then, in the temple, on the altar, he erected an image of Zeus right above it. It was the largest, the greatest, most epic act of sacrilege that the Jews could imagine. In their temple, it is devoted to the one true God, you have a golden statue of Zeus and false worship occurring. And the Jews would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. Oh, the abomination of desolation in Daniel. Yeah, that was horrible. And Jesus basically says, this is going to happen again. When you see what happened then, starting to happen again, get out of town. And we know, as I shared last week, that the Roman emperor Caligula had declared that there should be a statue to himself placed in every temple that the Roman Empire was. And the Jews were the only one that said, not going to happen. And that sparked, ultimately, a revolt that led to this war. So Jesus says, when you see this happening like you saw in Daniel, flee from the city. Now, as I said, Luke describes the same exact teaching that Jesus is doing in Luke 21, I believe it is. We have four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I put John over here because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. means they have the same general story, same general chronology. Over here, John has a... He's not chronologically devoted. He's trying to prove Jesus is God. It's a different focus. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain some of the same, uh, and largely the same stories. And in Luke 21, where Jesus is teaching, here's how Luke describes it. Luke 21 says this. He doesn't use the word abomination of desolation let the readers understand. Why? Because Luke is not writing to Jews. Luke is writing to Gentiles. And if we reference Daniel, they go, we had not read Daniel, right? Here's what he says. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that is desolation same word, has come near. Verse 21, to know he's speaking the same thing. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Same words from Matthew 24. For there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So, essentially Jesus warns them, when you see the Roman armies surrounding the city, you need to flee because the temple is about to be desecrated, which would mean the city burned also, like it happened over a hundred years ago. Then Jesus continues and says, the surrounding armies that come around Jerusalem, this time will precede what Jesus calls the Great Tribulation. Now many of you have probably heard of the Great Tribulation. Perhaps you have an understanding of it. Jesus says, there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. I find it interesting that when people begin to argue about end times, they often argue about what the greatest tribulation was. Like, oh, this was the greatest, or this was the greatest, and we'll talk about that. But if we again go with the history As we learned last week, the destruction of Jerusalem actually began with the armies of Rome under a guy named Cestius circling with his 12th legion when the Roman official who went to clean out the temple was basically kicked out. The Jews said, you can't take our money, you can't put a statue in there, and Cestius is like, alright, I'm taking my 12th legion and we're going to come and they're going to attack. But the Jews put down that. In fact, they defeated the Roman garrison. And the Jews were like, bam! We can beat Rome! We 
are now ready for independence. Obviously, the Rome Romans were not really willing to give that, but they were radicalized against Rome. And after the Roman failure, though, what history tells us is that a ton of people fled. They fled the city. In fact, Josephus puts it this way. He's a Jewish historian living at the time. He says, after this catastrophe had befallen Cestius, because a Roman legion basically being defeated by this little Jewish you know, sect or Jewish religion was unheard of. Professional you know, soldiers being defeated by you know, pitchforks and who knows what. It says, after this catastrophe had befallen Cestius, many of the distinguished Jews abandoned the city like swimmers from a sinking ship. Why? Because they knew what was coming. And it did come. 60,000 troops under a general named Vespasian who came and again circled the city. He left because Nero, the current emperor, committed suicide and he became emperor. And then his son, Titus, you may have heard of, came and circled the city twice, cutting off all access to the city and all exits or entrances. Now we know that up until this point and even at this point, all the signs Jesus talked about, the false Christ, the false conversions, um, the persecutions, the martyrdoms, at this point, Peter and Paul were most likely dead. All of this great tribulation that was going on preceded what would be the abomination of desolation, which is the desecration of the temple. But not right away. In fact, history records that Titus, the general, repeatedly offered clemency to the Jews and often sent even Josephus himself to the walls of the city to appeal for their surrender. They refused, and the tribulation became very real. Famine eventually set in as the city's granaries and the storehouses were burned and the water reservoirs were polluted. One commentator noted that the residents of the city not only sold their homes, but their own children to obtain food. People regularly ate from the public sewers. They ate cattle and pigeon dung. They ate their leather shields. They ate their money. Really? Yes. They ate hay. They ate clothing. Some argue they even ate their own babies. A horrible tribulation. Josephus described it this way, Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were filled with women and children dying of the famine. The lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows all swelled with famine, fell down dead wherever their misery seized them. Thus did the miseries of Jerusalem grow worse and worse and worse every day. And indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight and produced a pestilential stench which was a hindrance to those that would make sallies out of the city and fight the enemy. When you get a picture of the horribleness and the conditions of Jerusalem that is surrounded by armies, you begin to wonder if this was the Great Tribulation. In desperation, there were those who tried to leave the city at night to hunt for food, but they were captured by the Romans. And thousands of them were crucified in plain sight of the city walls, often at a rate of 500 people per day. So many were killed in this manner that one historian wrote, room was wanting for crosses and crosses wanting for bodies. This was a great tribulation, but the question is, was it the great tribulation that we've always thought of? Because when Jesus says it's going to be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no one will never be, right? We're like, I don't know. I mean, I know like a million and a half Jews died, but like six million died in the Holocaust. 
And you can imagine what people were like during World War II, like, oh, Hitler's got to be the Antichrist. And this has got to be the Great Tribulation. And then it just kind of fizzled out, right? I mean, he won and he was defeated. We have to be careful going, okay, what's the greatest tribulation? Because the greatest tribulation isn't necessarily body count. Isn't necessarily the horribleness with which people died. The phrase uh, that such has not been from the beginning of the world or will never be is actually used several times in Scripture. It's cited in Exodus 11.6 when the firstborn children of the Egyptians dies in the tenth plague and it says a cry went out such as never has been heard before and never will be heard of again as they wept over their dead. It also appears in Ezekiel when they speak about the Babylonian captivity. And what we see then is that the greatness of the tribulation, again, was not the number of deaths or the horribleness of the conditions. It was, I believe, the spiritual significance of what's actually going on. The greatness of the symbolism, not actual necessarily the material things that are occurring. The destruction of the temple signals the greatest judgment by God. You have the removal of His presence. You have the cessation and never to be started again of the sacrificial system which maintained their relationship with God. And you have what I think is the end of what we'll call the Judaic age. The end of the Old Covenant. That is great. That is never to be repeated again. It was an incredible time. And as a Jew writing to Jews saying this is going to happen, they will be like, that will be the worst thing. I can't imagine that. But then Jesus even gets more confusing. He says that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heavens will be shaken. And people read that and go, surely that didn't happen. I don't remember the great eclipse and the moon and the sun disappearing and stars falling from the sky and everything shaking. And I would agree, if if you take these words literally, that would be a sight. But this is apocalyptic language. It's symbolic language. It is biblical language that's been used before. Jesus is likely quoting a passage from Isaiah 13 where the exact same thing, the stars and the moon and the sun are not giving their light and the heavens are shaking. And that's when God is speaking about the judgment that He is going to bring on Babylon for taking His people into captivity. The same language. In essence, I believe that these cosmic catastrophes are actually descriptions of these military movements that signal the end. The destruction. And that's exactly what happened. The the walls are eventually breached. Titus stops giving them chances. They attack and they burn the city. And while the city of Jerusalem is still burning, The soldiers who bring their legionary standards, so these big standards that have the eagle crest on them. You saw similar standards used in Nazi movements because they were trying to live that that Third Reich Roman uh, mentality. They had these standards and they brought them into the temple precincts and they offered sacrifices there and they declared Titus to be the victor who was the general. And these idolatrous pictures of Caesar and the Roman eagle on the standards would have constituted the most and worst imaginable blasphemy to the Jewish people. This was, I believe, the abomination that brings desolation. And again, Josephus, describing this time, who would have witnessed it, said the Romans, upon the flight of the seditious into the city, and upon the burning of the holy house itself, and of all the buildings lying round about it, brought their ensigns or standards flags to the temple, set them over against its eastern gate, and there did they offer sacrifices to them. And there did they make Titus imperator 
with great acclamations of joy. And so as you read a verse like verse 28 that says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures gather. You see, as you get a picture of what happened, the vultures are literally and figuratively gathering over the city that is dying or dead. But then Jesus says, at the moment of this destruction, there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And you go, that's Jesus' return, right? Jesus didn't return, did he? Some believe that this does talk about Jesus' second coming, and so they use it to uh, kind of propel a futuristic view of everything. Like this, Jesus hasn't returned, so all these things must happen in the future. And uh, they have biblical reasons for that. I don't want to dismiss them like, oh, those idiots. They don't know. I'm not trying to say that at all. Uh, they have a very uh, you know, sound hermeneutic for understanding this. I just have a different one. But I would distinguish um, this coming, what we see here, coming in the clouds from what I believe is the actual second coming that is described in the next chapter. If you turn to Matthew 25.31, it says this, very similar sounding verse. It says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. The verse that I read is that you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Seems a minor difference. I think it's a significant one. I think one is talking about the coming destruction that we are describing here, and one is the second one describing his second coming. Essentially, what we see is God coming in the clouds, Jesus as a picture which is often used of clouds and destruction to destroy Jerusalem. Yes, Jesus is leading the armies of Rome in the same way that God led the armies of Babylon to destroy His own people in the Old Testament, in the same way that God led the uh, armies of the Assyrians to destroy the Babylonians who destroyed His people, in the same way Rome is being here used as a tool. That the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power is the Son of Man leading, if you will, the Roman armies to punish and judge the tribes of Israel for the rejection of the Messiah. And when Jesus was arrested, just to help us see this picture, Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night. He was tried illegally by the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. And He was asked this question. It's in Matthew chapter 26, of which we will deal with in the future. He's asked, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus' response in verse 64 is this. Jesus said to him, You have said so. Which is shorthand for, yep. He said, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, those guys never saw Jesus returned. But they did see Jesus judge on the clouds through the Roman armies, Jerusalem, and the Jews. In other words, he's telling them, you're gonna, not going to see Jesus, but you are going to perceive His judgment very clearly within 35-ish years. But the last part, and I think coolest part. Jesus says He's going to send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And again, you're like, did that ever happen? And if you don't have historical context, and I believe, like most of the verses I'm bringing up, you could probably find your cross-references. This isn't like, you know, I'm not some super biblical scholar. I just know how to read my Bible. But, Without historical understanding of this text, reading about angels and trumpets and gathering elect, 
people have gotten really creative with their interpretations. Because they're convinced that it's future. It has to have happened in the future. I've seen people who take it literally to say this passage is when the angels come and they go about the world and they grab all the Jews and they literally fly them back to Jerusalem and they believe and Jesus, come, Jesus comes and reigns with them. And you kind of go, I mean, that's fun, but that sounds freaky, right? I, that sounds freakier than, than a lot of other interpretations. Though, they will read the text and you can see how they might come to that conclusion. The word for angels can also be translated as messengers. And as we read before, earlier in 24, I believe these messengers have gone out into the known world. Paul would say the entire world. So much so in Colossians, he could say the world was, or the word was proclaimed to all of creation. And as the gospel has been proclaimed, converts are certainly made by God's grace, and disciples are gathered into the universal and the local church. That does occur and has occurred. And understanding the the trumpet takes a little bit of work. I appreciated uh, Professor Ken Gentry's treatment of this passage, particularly the trumpet. And he brought in uh, a concept that I thought was just awesome. And it made a tremendous amount of sense to me. Isaiah 61 is a passage that um, is read often, and you may be familiar with it. But here's what it says. And again, I would encourage you to get the notes, because I know I'm going over a lot of stuff, and and how you keep track is is difficult. But here's what Isaiah 61 speaks about. It's often referred to as a messianic passage. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He has sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, Zion being the hill on which the city of Jerusalem was built, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations that repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And this is the passage, at least the beginning, that Jesus reads as the first thing when He is in Nazareth in the synagogue starting His ministry. He stands up, he opens Isaiah 61, he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Sits down, they kick him out of town. You go, okay, what does that have to do with it? Alright, stay with me. Once every 50 years, according to Old Testament law, after seven periods of seven years, so seven times seven, 49, so the 50th year was called the year of Jubilee, good job, right? Jubilee. Ever heard of the year of Jubilee? You can hear about it now. The year of Jubilee was a huge year in the life of the Jew. Interestingly enough, I looked this up just a couple days ago. The 70th year of Jubilee. 70th year, which is the 70th time Jubilee has happened, is beginning in the fall of 2015. Isn't that crazy? I don't know what it means. Maybe Jesus is coming back. That would be awesome. But God loves 70. Just know that. That's a side note. But the year of Jubilee, uh, biblically, was a year of rest, a year of emancipation, a year of restoration. In, in many ways, I believe the year of Jubilee fulfills everything that was spoken about in Isaiah 61. Every 50 years. The Jubilee came, as I said, once every 50 years, which is generally once every generation. And it would end financial oppression. People's loans would be forgiven by law. 
no matter what they owed. Imagine all your debt being gone, just get to the 50th year, right? Boom! That 49th year, you're charging stuff like crazy. Slaves were set free. So they were emancipated. They indentured servants. They were free to start their own lives. Mortgages forgiven. That would be nice. All bondage was broken. People were allowed to start fresh. And it was even a year of rest for the land. There was a year of agricultural rest, like they no farming during the year. You would let the land rest, and God promised to abundantly bless the next crops and the orchards and the people if the people would rest from their labor. It was a year to basically focus on God and not farming or money or social problems. It was a time of restoration, an awesome time. And the year of Jubilee was ushered in by a trumpet blown on the Day of Atonement. Coincidence? I think not. The passage in Isaiah that Jesus quotes also says that this time period will be a time of the Lord's favor and the time of vengeance against His enemies. He says it's going to be a time that is centered on the city of Jerusalem, on Zion. And when Jesus earlier said, this is the beginning of birth pains, remember that last week? This is the beginning of birth pains. That same phrase, those words can also be translated to talk about death pains. And my point is this, what you see in the destruction of Jerusalem is that death and resurrection always go together. And in the destruction of the temple, we have the death of Judaism. A death of the Old Covenant, if you will. Something incredibly wonderful and special, but very localized around one people. But in the death of Judaism, we have the birth of the church. Something, I believe, even more beautiful and something even more universal. As in, Jews and Gentiles were brought together into one people. But that required the death of this Old Covenant and the death of our Savior to complete, not just, all right, done with that covenant, but to complete all the requirements of the atonement. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, sorry, 2. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who made us both one, Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you, Gentiles, who were far off, and preached peace to those who were near, Jews. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father, so then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. Jesus comes and He atones for all the sins of His church, of His people whom He will save. And then to confirm that what He has done in bringing to an end the Old Covenant, the temple is destroyed. But that doesn't mean God's people are ended. There's a new people that are birthed. When Jesus saves you, He saves you and adopts you into His family. Into His church. And just as the Jews were given the Law of Moses written on tablets, certainly for the purpose of showing us what sin was, but more so for the purpose to show us who God is, that didn't just disappear when the Jews ended. What happened was he birthed a church 
who through the Gospel, God says, the Word, the Law of God is now going to be written where? In our hearts. And it's through the church now that God is made known. It was the Jewish people. It, it still is in some sense as much as it leads us to His people. Even Paul says in Ephesians 3, of this Gospel is made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power to me, though I'm the very least of all saints. Grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, i.e. the church, hidden for ages in God who created all things. Why? Verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church now, as Judaism dies, as it's, as it's destroyed and ends, a new life is birthed in the church to continue in a full and more complete way picture who God is. And as we preach the Gospel, what we see, again, preaching Jesus' death for sin, preaching Jesus' resurrection for new life, we, I believe, experience the same cycle that we see in Jerusalem. I believe that personally and corporately, we continue to go through a cycle of death and resurrection until we really die and we really rise again. That doesn't mean we become more saved. It means we become more like Jesus. And so, you see today, for example, the church. You look and you go, man, Things are bad. Right? You see the church cut up like, man, you guys are affirming that which seems totally unbiblical, and yet you're still calling you the church. You guys are just irritating and not fun at all. And there's a few people that seem like they believe the Bible and truly love Jesus. That is a process I think the church goes through over and over again. And through that process, things die. And the true church is revealed. And guess what? It brings new life to the church. Even persecution. Even false prophets. Even all these things. As it goes through the cycle of, okay, we're in a season of death again, and now we're in a season of resurrection. We're becoming more beautiful. And more free. And certainly more biblical, not less. And that happens to us personally. Personally, we go through that. Jesus, who began a good work in us, is not done with us. And our lives often feel like and look like a cycle of death and resurrection as a loving God disciplines us at times to bring about something more beautiful. And we experience trials that are hard and painful, but it brings about something more beautiful. And so in this picture, we see a cycle of death and resurrection. So just because the temple dies doesn't mean the presence of God goes away. It means we have something more beautiful being created. Namely, in this case, the church. And I believe that the Bible says this happens through His Word primarily. That Jesus takes us through that cycle as the Gospel goes deeper into our hearts and the Word of God becomes more alive to us. Ephesians 5, speaking to husbands about how to love your wives, says that you're going to present your wives to God as Christ presented the church to God, washing it with the Word constantly that it might be sanctified, that it might be free of spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might free of blemish. And that's what God's Word does. As we dive into God's Word, there are words that truly comfort us in times of difficulty. And then some of the things cut us deeply and they convict us and they compel us, I believe, to change. To love sin less and to love Jesus more. And all of that begins with remembering that the trumpet was blown. That the trumpet of Jubilee, right? That I have been freed from my prison which was sin. And it's evidenced by the destruction of the temple. Like, it has been not just jubilee in terms of Judaism, jubilee in terms of the atonement of Jesus Christ has freed us. Has freed us to be forgiven, to live as if we are forgiven. 
has made that which seems ash and broken and yucky, given us hope and made new life. As we experience what feels like death, we can trust that there's been a resurrection and we become, as Isaiah 61 says, in a very real way, more rich, more free, and more beautiful. That's what this history reveals to us. It's not just a history lesson to go, oh, okay, glad that happened. When's Jesus coming back? It's to go on that and see what else is God doing. And we celebrate that here. And it's easy to remember and to think about as you come to the table, which we often do, of like, yep, I really screwed up again this week. Praise God, I'm forgiven. And that's true. That happens. And that is why we have His blood shed for us. And that's why His body is broken for us. But let's not forget three days. Three days later, He rose from the dead. He gave you not just... Um, forgiveness for your sin. He gave you a new life to live. And if right now you're in the midst of personal, or if you look at the church and go, man, I'm just despairing however the world is going, don't forget the resurrection. God is still in control. God is still active. God is still present. And Jesus is still returning. And we'll get to talk about that in the next couple weeks. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word It is mysterious. It is often difficult. And we desperately need Your Spirit to teach us and to guide us and to help us understand what it is You want us to know. Father, I pray that You'll help us to see the the greatness of Your plan with the Jewish people. That we will see uh, the climax uh, of, of what occurred and what you said and and what you were doing in the destruction of this city over 2,000 years ago, Lord. As Jesus also did, I pray you will help us to weep. Weep over our own sin. Weep over those who have rejected you just as the Jews did back in AD 70 and before that. And as we weep, Lord, I also pray You help us to rejoice in our salvation, to remember that there is no death without a resurrection. To not let us sit in the despair of our brokenness or the reality of Your judgment, but to rest in the glories of Your salvation, of Your forgiveness, of hope beyond death. Continue to help us, though, Lord, to die to ourselves that we might live for Your Son who died for us. Let us receive Your discipline that's coming from a Father who loves us. A Father who who is devoted to us. And help us to display Your goodness, Your greatness, and Your grace to a world that desperately needs You. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.